Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Philippians 2, and uh, we are continuing to work our way through uh, this book of Philippians through a series of called Audacious Joy. And if you are new with us, we kind of go through books of the Bible section by section. Uh, it allows us to keep the text in the context and understand what God is saying to us and then, and then apply it to our lives. So this morning we'll be in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. But I want to ask you, have you, have you ever uh, wondered or asked yourself the question, can people really change? And maybe you've asked the question because someone in your life doesn't seem to be changing, or maybe, maybe you asked the question because you're having a hard time yourself seeing any noticeable progression in your faith. But it's a fair question. Can people really change? Can someone become something different than what they were? Can an unaffectionate person become a loving person? Can an impatient person become a patient person? Can a person who's never on time for anything, always late, become a person who actually shows up on time for things? We had a lady in a previous church I served who was a psychologist. She said she had actually a name for people like this. It's not a real word, but she called them chronotards. Um, a chronotard is, is someone who is chronically tardy and, and cannot be on time. You have anybody in your life like this? You don't raise your hand as they did in first service. Um, maybe when I say that, you have someone that you think of right away specifically, and now you're angry because you were late for something recently because they were a part of it. Can a person change who they are? Can people change what they love? Can people change who they love? Can people change? I guess this, the question is, can a leopard change its spots? I have a friend whose mother is in her early 80s, and wonderful Christian woman, uh, been all over the world, highly educated, just has a great, a great attitude about her and a joy to be around. But when you talk to her, you start to realize that she seems to believe that people can never really change. They never really change. And so I ask the question, is that true? If it is true, how discouraging if people cannot change, if they can change, how do people change? And we're going to look at that question this morning as we continue to work our way through the text. Last week, we looked at what uh, many biblical scholars call this majestic mountain peak of Christian doctrine. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And as we consider that beautiful, amazing, powerful passage, this, this mountain peak of Christian doctrine and this of high Christology, and we consider the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of God who humbled himself to transform the world that he made through the work of his Son. We consider that on Sunday, and of course, we're led to worship and we're led to exaltation and joy in Christ. But then Monday comes, and we're back to the regular rhythm work projects and slow traffic and marital spats and health issues, walking the dog, parenting, dorm life, lopsided softball defeats, all of these things. And we're faced with that on Monday. We say, what, what is going on here? It, somehow this amazing theology seems just academic, really. It has nothing that seems to do with our real lives. And I think this is why Paul actually writes the way that he does. We're, we're, we're moving from one doctrinal transition to some very practical instruction, but it's very intentional. I think we're going to see that as we move forward. 
Because this is really what tra- theology is. What we, uh, what we understand about God must change the way that we live. Otherwise, we don't really understand who God is. So with that question in the back of our minds, how do people change? Then let's, let's look at the text together. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Here reads the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I want to pause there. We have to pause there because if you you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know anything about his ministry, about his writings, then this should absolutely stun you. In fact, this kind of leaves us frozen in our tracks. You know, it's kind of like the, the technology, the scene that's depicted in many movies and I think maybe perfected by the Matrix series where there's somebody who's, who's just frozen, completely frozen still, while everything still circulates around him or her. Bullets are flying and explosions are going off and people are doing roundhouse kicks and all kinds of things, but this person is frozen in time. And this is kind of the way that we are when we encounter the Apostle Paul's words here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the same guy. This is the greatest preacher of the gospel of grace of all time, apart from our Lord Jesus. So we read that and we say, how can that be? I mean, this is the guy who wrote in Romans 4 or 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How could Paul say to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? If you've been around Capshaw very long, you've noticed there are some concepts and some phrases and some truths that we repeat uh, uh, on a regular basis that bring us great comfort as Christians. For example, you've been around long, you've heard us talk about resting in the gospel. We say things like the only way for us to find relief from our spiritual and emotional and relational uh, exhaustion is not to work harder, but to rest better. Only by learning to rest in Jesus, His finished work on the cross, will we find the strength that we need to thrive in our spiritual journey. So you hear that. and We say things like, we talk about the completed work of Jesus. We say, there's nothing you can do, there's no work you can perform that will add anything to what's been done. We also talk about, and mentioned this last week, how our growth in Christ is not a result of us trying harder, digging down deeper, finding some strength within. But our work is a work, is a, our growth is a work of God's Spirit. So you hear these things. And hearing all of these wonderful things, these are all true. Praise God, they're all true. We need to hear them on a regular basis. But hearing all these amazing biblical truths may cause you to conclude, if you're not listening to the whole message, if you're just sort of you know, you're cherry-picking certain things, it may cause you to conclude that as believers we shouldn't work at our faith, that working at our faith is actually a negative thing. Well, as we've just seen, Paul has made this indisputably clear that such is not the case. Even though salvation is all from God, 100% from Him, it is from Him, it is of Him, it is for Him and His glory, we don't simply kick back and just observe God at work. We have a responsibility ourselves to do work. So before we move any further, I don't want to blunt the force of this. Let me give you our first point this morning. The Christian life is one of wholly dependent, spirit-enabled effort. 
Christian life is a life of activity, not passivity. Now, again, maybe you're thinking, wait, aren't you the one who tells us all the time to rest in the gospel? And yes, we are to rest in the gospel. The gospel marks the end of our striving for the Lord's approval. It marks the end of us working for our salvation. The end of our endless labors to be good enough for God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was in fact good enough and indeed perfect for us. He lived a sinless life, obeyed God fully, satisfied the requirements of God's law so that we can rest by faith in what Jesus has done. In Christ, God speaks a word to us, and the word is, it is enough, or even better, it is finished. In Christ, we have complete forgiveness, God's unwavering love, His performance-free acceptance of us, again, because of what Jesus did on the cross, which was enough. It was enough to pay our debt, as we just sang about together. It was enough to remove our guilt and stain. The resurrection was proof of What Jesus did was enough. But again, all that doesn't mean that we cease from activity. Not only are we to work out our salvation, but Paul says we do so with fear and trembling. We say, now what in the world does that mean? John, the the, the best friend of Jesus, the author of books in the Bible, says says that perfect love casts out fear. How are we supposed to work with fear? Well, let me tell you a few things. It's not. It's not a fear of condemnation. So for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So we don't worry about that. It's not a fear of what other people think of us. Those of us in Christ, we're, we're free from that. It's not, a free, it's not a fear of hell or God's judgment. Those, again, those in Christ are free uh, from that. We're not, we don't have to be afraid of those things. And it's not a fear of losing our salvation. We're just saying about this. Christ is the one who will hold us fast. So what are we to be afraid of? Well, the fear and trembling represent the recognition of the terrifying power and glory of the God of the universe who is, in fact, among us even now. This God who made the world is actually with us right now. And when we talk about this God, we're talking about the God who, remember in the Old Testament, actually physically, literally opened up the earth and swallowed up those who rebelled against him. We're talking about a God who is so powerful that the psalmist tells us he rips up mature trees by the voice, by the breath of his nostril. He just breathes and trees are uprooted. This is a God who has the power to crack the world open. This is a God who spoke the word and the world was made. And so this is a God who is terrifying in his power and his glory and actually commands us to work. But then look what he assures us next, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if we read verse 12 without verse 13, we we misunderstand the whole thing. We, We misunderstand everything. We work as... God works in us. We can even say this. We work because God is at work at us. We we love because God has loved us. We serve because God in Christ has served us and enables us to serve. Remember Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. So 
We work as God works in us. And as we incline ourselves to serve others, which so many of you have, are doing even today, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. As we incline ourselves to serve others like Jesus, He's already doing the real work in us by His Spirit to enable us to do so. So there's a very important distinction I want you to notice here that Paul makes in the previous verse that helps to make sense of this verse. Notice that Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. Now, this would be very troubling, wouldn't it? If, if, if Paul said work for your salvation, then we would never know, have I done enough work? What is actually sufficient? What's good enough? What about if I do a lot of work, but then I fail the next day? So he doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't even say work at your salvation. You know, maybe it's you're at home and it's late in the evening and you go up and you you don't even tell your, your son or daughter you're coming up, but you just open the door and you find him or her doing their homework. You haven't asked them to do their homework. This has never happened to me. But if you do this and you, you, your kids just do their homework, you don't ask. No, that's not true. My daughter does her homework all the time without me asking. But if you go up and you open the door and, you, and your daughter's doing her homework and she says, hey, Dad, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to work at a problem. I'm working at a problem. Well, if you hear that, then you may actually wonder, is there going to be a solution? Will the solution ever be reached? Will the outcome ever be reached? But if your daughter says to you, mom or dad, I'm working out a problem, then you might fairly assume that the problem will be resolved. The only issue is, how is she going to get there? How is she going to get there? Well, this is the way it is with our salvation. There's no, there's no question about the outcome. The outcome is secure. The question is, how is God going to work in us and through us to bring it about? Uh, the great German theologian Ulrich Mueller said, God works in humans, producing the desire to fulfill God's will and the power to achieve it. Paul admonishes the Philippians to, to work out what God in His grace worked in. Here's a second point I want you to see. Our works of obedience neither secure nor complete our salvation, but give growing evidence of the reality of it. So we're called to obey. We obey God, and we, we, we respond to His commands by the power of His Spirit. We don't secure our salvation by doing so. We don't complete our salvation by doing so. What we do is we give evidence to the fact that God is actually working in us. Let me say it a different way. Our obedience is not the cause of our sanctification that is becoming more like Christ. Our obedience is the fruit of our sanctification, what God is doing in molding us into the image of His Son. By our good works, Paul will say in a minute, we shine like stars in a dark world. What's the most striking thing? Some of you live out in the country and maybe you're able to go and you see beautiful wide open spaces and skies. What's the most striking thing about looking out and seeing stars in a dark sky? Is it not the contrast? It is the darkness, the blackness of the sky over and against the, the, the radiance of the star, the constellations and so on. Well, what Paul says is by, by our obedience... We actually stand out by living in a way that's very different. In fact, in stark contrast with the rest of the world. Our obedience reveals that God is at work in us. 
So there is work involved. You know, if we really want to, if we really know this Jesus, we'll begin to look more and more like him over time, and we will live in stark contrast with the rest of the world, where, for example, revenge trumps forgiveness, where self-promotion squeezes out sacrifice, where hate often reigns in the heart rather than love. If we really know Jesus, we'll begin to look more and more like him over time. But there will be work involved on our parts. Not work to earn grace. If that were the case, it wouldn't be grace. Work in expressing grace. Work in living in light of who we truly are in Christ. Now, I know you want to know the answer to the question that I want to know the answer. And that is, what specifically, okay, what specifically are the works that we are to do, the works by which God actually transforms us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want to stop there. So, Do you want to resemble Jesus more? Of course you do if you're in Christ. Do you want to shine like stars in a dark world? Do you want to give evidence that God is at work in you? Paul gives three ways, and really ways for us to work out our salvation, but even better stated ways that God is at work in us. And so I want to to work through those here quickly. So so the first two points, I've given you those. Now point three will be A, B, and C. And they will represent the ways that God is at work in us. The first one takes us back to the children of Israel in the desert who, though being provided for by God, God gave them everything they needed, they complained and they murmured and they whined and they grumbled and any other uh, such words. God gives them all the food they need and they say, really? Like this manna stuff again? We really have to eat this again? And then God gives them quail and they say, really? Like, this is all you have for us? Like, we were way better off in Egypt with all the salads and the fruits and the nuts and all this stuff. Why are we out here in the wilderness? They complained. and actually made God very angry. God was angry at their complaining. And we might say to ourselves, well, we, we have our own reasons to murmur and complain. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that you know, just, just reading the daily news, just clicking on the news app of your phone, it can be a very disturbing experience depending on what's happened in the last 12 hours or 24 hours, and maybe complaining, grumbling, murmuring, whatever it is, seems like an acceptable thing to do given the world we live in, the state of the world we live in. But Paul's instruction is actually to live opposite to that, to live noticeably different from what's widely accepted. So here's the way we work out our salvation, so to speak, in this passage. God works in us and changes us as we cultivate and display a spirit of gratitude. Now notice I said as we cultivate and display and not if we cultivate and display. For those in Christ, God will work and change us. So so sanctification, that is becoming more like Christ, is not a possibility or, or a likelihood if we do certain things. It is a certainty because of the work of the Spirit in us. 
But one of the ways that we see God at work in us most beautifully is as we cultivate contentment and gratitude. And frankly, this is one of the, this is, I don't want to say it's troubled me over the years, but this is one of those things that's really I've wrestled with over the years. How do we cultivate in ourselves, in our children, a spirit of gratitude? Because I think we can probably fairly say this is the age of entitlement. How do we cultivate, how do we cultivate in our families a spirit of gratitude? And I've wrestled with this a lot. When I think about gratefulness, I think about gratitude, what I really think of, frankly, are, are the, the grown women in my life. My wife first, my mom, my mother-in-law, my sister. These, these are ladies who are grateful, and they, they have embodied that and live that way. My wife lives with a spirit of joy and gratitude, and I don't ever get her a gift where she looks at it and says, well, I mean, this is and this is okay, but like I really have my heart set on something else. Uh, my mom, who grew up with an alcoholic and an abusive father and a, a mother who was emotionally distant, and, and yet she's grateful for everything. My mother-in-law, just such a grateful woman. You never, my, my in-laws are such an easy hang. They're just so easy to be around because they, 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 just, they just overflow with gratitude. And I've wondered, like, how does that work? How, and, and what I realize is that I mean, it's, of course it's at God at work in us, but it actually requires a choice on our part. It's a choice that we make as we, dispend, as we depend on the Spirit. There's a conscious decision to not complain, to see the beauty in what God is doing. Not only so we stand out from what Paul calls a crooked and perverse world, a world, again, characterized by this attitude of deserving But when we stop complaining and choose to be grateful, we're actually working out the salvation that God is working in us. See, gratitude gives way to worship. Gratitude gives way to obedience. And obedience leads to the development of character, which is God's transformation of of us from the inside out. Well, Paul says that through not grumbling, we will not be blameless, or we will be blameless. He's not talking about how we are declared righteous before God. He's talking about how we stand out from the world as distinctively Christian by, first of all, our gratefulness, by our contentment. What else? Look at verses 16 and 17. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. The phrase hold fast, of course, implies naturally intentionality, effort, activity. And the word of life that Paul talks about, that phrase word of life is a, is a Pauline idiom. It's a word, a phrase he loved to, to use. And he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness. He's talking about God's work through his son to redeem, to buy back this broken world and restore what's wrong with it. And Paul says we hold fast to the word of life. Here's here's the next way we work out our salvation, point 3B. God works in us and changes us as we avail ourselves of gospel-rich rhythms. What I mean by that is the Bible says repeatedly that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we know that it's the power of God 
to bring unconverted, unbelieving people to saving faith. But what's often missed in the church is how the gospel also brings about transformation in the heart and life of the believer. It does both. There was, uh, in the early part of the 18th century, the 1720s-ish, there was a a man by the name of George Whitfield who was uh, really one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Um, He would travel around on horseback and it's estimated that he, that he preached the gospel to more than 10 million people. Can you believe that? I mean, just incredible in Great Britain. Sometimes thousands of people at a time. And sometimes when he would preach, thousands of people, literally thousands of people would repent from their sin, turn and put their faith in Jesus. He was not really much to look at, so that was not the draw. He had real bright, rosy cheeks. He would come real red when he preached, very thin lips, and he was severely cross-eyed. So you never really knew if he was looking at you or somebody else. Here's a picture. It doesn't give you, it doesn't give you the full scope. Um, maybe he, he actually was not as good looking as that picture suggests. But he, he, he was this, you know, again, he was a guy who had this booming voice. This is before microphones and amplification. And he would speak. And people would listen and respond. Well, so, so Whitfield, as he would go around, he actually developed a very huge following. People who would go wherever he was going, but at the same time, He also developed a group of very harsh and angry critics, people who actually hated George Whitfield. One of them was a guy by the name of Thorpe, and Thorpe despised Whitfield. In fact, he would go wherever Whitfield was going, and he would heckle Whitfield while he was preaching. He would say some angry and terrible things. I've had people storm out when I preached, when I said something. I had somebody say to me they wished I was dead. This was actually on Christmas Eve, which was not the most... Uh, enjoyable thing, but I've had some people say some terrible things, but I've never had anybody sort of follow me around and just heckle me. That would be very annoying. And so uh, Whitfield has this guy, Thorpe, and he's just, he's just berating and saying the most vulgar things. Well, Thorpe gets a hold of one of Whitfield's manuscripts, sermon manuscripts. So he decides, you know, I'm going to actually go and mockingly deliver this sermon myself. And I'm going to accompany uh, with it all kinds of histrionics and, and drama, and I'm just going to go all out. And he actually, he's pretty good at nailing the mannerisms of George Whitfield. But he goes to this pub, and he has the manuscript in front of him. And just with the most mocking, derisive way, he starts to preach the sermon of George Whitfield. And little over a third of the way through, he's pierced to his heart. He puts the manuscript down. He goes and sits down, and he repents of his sin, and he puts his faith in Jesus Christ. This is as he was trying to mock George Whitfield and mock the gospel. God does a work in saving him. God does a work in piercing through his stubborn heart. So God has the the power by the gospel to break through and redeem people and make them converts. He also has the power by the gospel and uses power by the gospel to transform people into the image of his son. And how many people do you know? I've talked with people recently who have said, you know, I had to go back and seek so-and-so's forgiveness for the way that I treated him, for the way that I treated him. God has revealed in me areas in my life where I've been stubborn, where I've been impatient, where I've been rude, where I've been mean-spirited, whatever it is. God uses the gospel to transform us. God uses these rhythms as we gather together and worship and we sing songs together through the preaching of the Word, through spiritual conversations, through the fellowship of the saints, as we take in the Word of God ourselves, God changes us. He molds us into the image of His Son. What's God's work? He saves us and transforms us. 
What is our work? To take advantage of the means He provides. The Word of God, the fellowship of the saints, the worship of God, the ordinances of God. Well, since I just mentioned one influential uh, dead theologian, let me mention another. This is John Owen. So John Owen uh, lived almost exactly 100 years before uh, George Whitfield. So he was in the 17th century. And John Owen wrote the book, The Mortification of Sin. In fact, probably some of your favorite theologians, people that you read, men and women you read, might say this was the most important book in my development. I've, I've heard many, well, J.I. Packer, for example, many well-known theologians say this was, this was the, the book for me. Uh, John Owen uh, famously warned believers, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And he said that sin is one of these things that it, it's, it wants to consume all of us and it progresses as we entertain it. And so he would say that a liar who is unrepentant will begin lying in bigger and bolder ways. Those who let their lust go unchecked will eventually succumb to infidelity. Those who let hate reign in their hearts will ultimately turn to violence. That's how sin works. It follows a course of destruction. I remember going to a high school, high school uh, baseball game with one of my very close friends in Southern California. Uh, his son was a senior and he had a full ride to play baseball in New York. And I went to see his game. It was a playoff game and sitting there talking with my friend. And kind of out of the blue, my friend said, hey, if you don't mind, will you pray for me? I said, sure, what, what's going on? He goes, you know, I, I have found that I can't get enough of my son's baseball games. Like, I, I, I could watch baseball, I could watch my son play baseball from the start of the day to the end of the day. I, I can't get enough. And then he quoted uh, Proverbs 30, I think, where it says that there, there are these things that, that never say enough, the leech and the grave and so on. And he said, this is the way it is for me. Like, I, I, I know that I, I'm, I'm, things are wrong here. Things are, are out of balance. I can never get enough. And I, and, and I empathize with him. I, I could definitely say when my kids played sports, that was one of the, I had the same struggle. I would become excited in the early afternoon for an evening game. And so I understand how that works. Well, John Owen says, this is how sin is. Like the grave, it's, it's never satisfied until it totally takes from us everything of value. And Owen had just wrote so beautifully on this, uh, on the destructive tendencies of, of the, the nature of sin and so on. It was all very helpful stuff. But I think his best stuff, in my estimation, is the stuff that he wrote on sanctification, how God works and how we work in this beautiful balance. He says this, The Spirit works upon our understandings, wills, consciences, affections, agreeably to their own natures. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us so that His assistance is an encouragement and no occasion of our neglect. What He's saying is, yeah, God is the one who does the work, but He doesn't do it against us. He does it with us. So yeah, God works as we work. We work because God works. And yet in, in God's you know, divine and infinite wisdom, there's a mystery there. There's a tension there. So anything good that we do, any good work, any progress in our faith is because of God's preemptive work in us. And what we do by working out our salvation is, again, we give evidence that God is, in fact, working in us. And the way that God conforms us and transforms us and changes us 
is as we avail ourselves to these gospel rhythms. Now, there's one other way. Look at verse 18. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the word likewise there is not simply meant to modify the previous verse, but the previous section. And so it applies not just to being glad and rejoicing, but also to the willingness of being, to being poured out in sacrifice as a drink offering. So here Paul is, is awaiting what could be his execution. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He could be condemned to die. And even so, he is rejoicing in Jesus. He's being poured out as a drink offering. It's a beautiful Old Testament analogy. We don't have time really to, to explain but it's this idea of just complete sacrifice, the complete of giving oneself for the sake of another. And Paul's doing that, and yet he's not resentful. He's not fatalistic. He's not blaming God or anyone else. He is glad that he is counted worthy to suffer. And he calls on his readers and us to embrace that. So here's our final point. God works in us and changes us as we embrace a life of joyful sacrifice. Again, we see this tension. God is doing the work, but we must determine and be faithful in making sacrifices. We give up our time, and we see that God is working in us. And, and again, many of you do that on a regular basis. We give up our resources, and we see in that that God is working in us. We give up our rights and our privileges and our preferences and our prerogatives and all of those things. And we see that God is working in us. He works as we embrace a life of joyful sacrifice. When we surrender, when we give of ourselves for the sake of others, then God, what He does is He it changes us in often ways that are undetectable at first. They're, they're only identified over time. But we see that God is at work. So going back to my initial question, can a person really change? The answer is no, at least not in their own strength or by their own ability. But for those in Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. In fact, not only can people change, but they will necessarily change for those who are in Christ, for those who have been made alive by the work of the Spirit, because God will see to it, and He's faithful to finish what He starts. God will bring about these changes. Now, of course, there are some sin tendencies because we carry around what theologians call the baggage of the flesh that will never fully be over with. We're going to struggle with sin our whole lives until we are glorified. We receive these glorified bodies. But we will notice, again, as we work out our salvation, that God is, in fact, working in us. He's chipping away at our stubbornness. He's making us more patient. He's softening our hearts and calming our anger. I love to hear the stories of people who, they're in Christ and they walk with the Lord and they've taken it, they've availed themselves of these means that God has provided. And they say, yeah, I used to be an angry person. I used to be a violent person. I used to be an impatient person. And there's that great passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists all these terrible vices you know, drunkenness and murderers and envy and insolent and disobedient and haters of your parents. And then he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. It's the work of God's Spirit. So beautiful. 
He's changing our desires. He's taking away our love of sin. He's making us more repentant. Sometimes people, they'll, they'll judge a person's spiritual growth by how much more they're reading their Bible or how much more they're in church. And these are good things that should take place. But if I, when I look at it, if I want to see spiritual growth in my own life or somebody else's life, the first thing I look for is, is there greater repentance? Is there more frequent repentance? Does the person say more often, I'm sorry, I was wrong? This is what God does in the hearts of those he redeems. And he does all this by the power of the gospel as we fight for holiness. Now, I want to make one final word here as we close. I want to kind of I want to go back and I want to look at the very first word of this section as we draw it uh, to finality. Paul begins this section to his beloved fellow Christians at Philippi by saying, therefore, which means you have to consider everything that's been written up to this point, specifically what's been said most recently, the therefore points back to this incredible sacrifice that Jesus made. These, these action items, don't murmur, don't complain, don't grumble, so on, work out your salvation. This to-do list of verses 12 through 18 is a direct consequence of the what's-been-done list of verses 5 through 11. Everything that the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians and us to do will flow out of, be anchored in, be enabled by what Jesus has done for us. His descent to the earth, His humble birth as a human being, fully human, while still being fully God, Him becoming a servant, His obedience even to death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession for us even now. Do you know even at this moment Christ is interceding for you? He is praying for you. He is helping you even at this very moment. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, God's love for us doesn't depend on our ups and downs, our performance. In fact, God's love for us is completely independent of our performance. For those in Christ, we can't do one thing to make God love us less, one thing to make God love us more. We are fully loved by God because of Christ and His cross work. And it's out of God's secure for us. And again, it's if you want to look this up later, it's our progressive sanctification, our becoming more like Christ that flows out of our definitive sanctification. The fact we've already been set apart as those who are beloved by God and made holy by Him. This is how we become more like Christ as we rest in and dwell in the security of God's love for us and the reality that we're already forgiven by God in Christ. It's there that we find the power to obey, the power to grow as God changes us, and we're left with no feeling, no sense of accomplishment as though we've done something great. But we're left amazed at the glory of the cross on which our forgiveness was secured. And we don't say to anybody, look at me. We don't say to anybody, have you noticed how much I've grown lately? You don't, we don't say to people how, how great we're becoming. What we do instead is we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And we count as lost our richest gain. And we pour contempt on all our pride. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we sing the glory of the cross, will you help us to believe it? And will you help us to rest in the gospel so fully that it leads us to become active in loving our neighbor and pursuing the lost 
in serving one another and our community. Lord, I pray that you would move in such a way that our understanding of your grace and your gospel stirs our hearts toward more joyful worship, toward hearts that are grateful, toward spontaneous obedience. And I pray that it spurs us again to see and experience and delight in your transforming power in us by the gospel. Help us even now as we sing together to to see maybe even with new eyes the beauty and the glory of the cross on which our Savior died and in whose name we pray. Amen.